0: Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Wayne Dio once said, when you judge another, you do not define them. You define yourself. Our guest used to be a judge who was given the ultimatum between remaining a judge or following his lifelong passion of becoming a comedian. He made the bold choice of becoming a comedian. It's ironic that in order to bring a smile and laughter to the masses, that one has to endure personal sacrifice. The other irony is that going from judging others, he is now being judged himself. However, this is America, and in this great country, we're able to make such choices and have the freedom to do so. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Mr. Vince Sicari. Welcome to the show, Vince.
1: Vip, how are you? Also known as Vince August.
0: Vince for August. For me. So which one is used for what?
1: Well, Vince August is my stage name. That's on my SAG card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vince Sicari is my legal name, and I actually purposely separated the two to avoid the situation, I wound up getting in.
0: You went from being a judge to being a stand-up comedian. You've got to be a white guy, right? Because no one of color in their right mind would ever give up the security, the prestige, and the status of being a judge. Wow, we already went there, huh, Vip? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to. I'm setting the tone saying, for today's show.
1: Uh, let me. I have to acknowledge right out of the gate the unbelievable '80s police show music that you guys have to start off this amazing radio show. That's amazing. Where did you guys dig that track up from?
0: Well, Because I am from the 80s. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, sir, the court's in session. Yes. So you grew up in a typical immigrant family where aspirations for children were stereotyped. You know, for example, one was expected to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, or if you had the soul of an amoeba in the imagination of a pot noodle, you would be trained to be an accountant or a banker. You know, in short, you know, you were expected to be part of a profession. Was it the same for you?
1: You know what? It it it's kind of the same for me. I think more pressure was on me than my older siblings. I'm the youngest of four. Mm-hmm. We grew up in a family business. So my two older brothers grew up in the business working with dad. Um I think when you got to my sister and me because we didn't have as big a part in the family business, there was more pressure on us to deliver on the college and post-college dream. So, yeah, it was, it was more of a weight on us. But, um, yeah, it was definitely there. They wanted to see. Listen, every parent wants to see more from their child than they did from themselves. It's just what you want to see. You want to see your kid do better than you.
0: Yes, absolutely. But the desire uh, to be a comedian, did your parents and family ever know what you truly wanted to be?
1: God, they they knew from when I was a kid, and my parents cringed immediately. <laughs> it was an immediate... It's almost like telling an Italian mother, you're not hungry anymore, you're full. You know, they just keep bringing the food out. Um, this was kind of the same thing. I, I said to my parents when I was a kid, you know, I think I want to be an actor. I think this is my path in life. And they looked at me, and they said, no. They said, that's not your path. Your path is another path. They said, in fact, if anyone in our family was going to be an actor... It, you'd probably be our last choice.
0: So what were you like as a child?
1: I was very introverted. I was a very introverted kid. I was very quiet. Um, we moved a little bit when I was younger. So, you know, my first four years, I grew up in Bergenfield. Then we moved to Hackensack. And by the time we were in seventh grade, I moved to Paramus. So there, there was enough movement there that I really didn't get roots and, and develop lifelong friendships the way some people do.
0: You moved two places.
1: Yeah, and then you know, by you the time roots? I was in college, we were moving again.
0: Okay. No, because I've lived in um, 10 different countries. I'm the one who doesn't have roots.
1: Yeah, well, listen, I, I go town to town, which in Bergen County is like moving from country to country, depending.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was that one defining moment, that aha moment, that made you realize the way ahead?
1: Uh, it was after I took the bar exam, mm. um, for the third time, I, I missed by a point and a, a, I think a half a point the first two times. It was the third time I took it. Um, I remember, like it was yesterday, I took the final exam and I woke up in the middle of the night and, you know, call it a vision, call it whatever it was. I just started writing material out of the blue and just started working and crafting it. So it was really like a vision.
0: Do you know what you, you were writing?
1: You know what? At the time, it was like three o'clock in the morning and it was just more rantings. It was more just me scribbling down ideas, notes, and it just turned, eventually turned into a one hour tape recorded set. But at the time, it was, you know, just stuff about me and what I'd been through in my life and experiences.
0: And it was just your experience in a humorous way?
1: Yeah, you'd like to think it's humorous. You don't really know until you put it to a group of strangers. Right. And strangers is the key because, you know, friends and family know you so they can relate to you differently and find humor and things that maybe strangers won't. Um, So it's, you know, you don't know it's humorous until strangers laugh at it.
0: Yeah, and, and taking that forward, you know, everyone wants some form of recognition or adulation from society. Um, in your life, you've chosen laughter over respect, being adored over being feared. Um, what's it about a, being a comedian that inspired you to sacrifice what you had?
1: There, uh, to me, there's no greater challenge mm-hmm. and no greater satisfaction than making a room full of strangers laugh. I think that is the most challenging thing to do. It's one of the hardest things to do. And if you're able to do it well, there's nothing more gratifying.
0: So you enjoy seeing people smile and laugh at, at, at what you say.
1: There's nothing better than that in life. It's it's the greatest high in life.
0: That's what the actors say as well, that they prefer acting uh, in plays rather than movies.
1: Well, it's, there's the instant gratification of the audience. Right. Whereas when you work on television um there's a camera, it's a closed set, and depending on you know what you're filming if it's if it's not live in front of an audience, no one can laugh mm-hmm. so that becomes very difficult to know whether or not you're doing well until someone yells "Cut," and then the room bursts out laughing, or at least you hope it does, yeah. but that's a very different feel, and it, it you're going on feel as opposed to reaction, which is Uh, another challenge uh, all into itself, which I also love.
0: Well, rewinding it a bit, was being a judge a boring job?
1: Absolutely not. And I loved the job. Um, I'm sorry I'm not doing it anymore Mm because I I thought I did it very well. Um, You know, listen, I was told I did it very well by the people that matter most.
0: So what were you like as a judge?
1: I, I was like what everyone would hope to have a judge be if you were walking into that courtroom as a defendant or whoever.
0: You mean merciful?
1: No, I wasn't even merciful. What what I was was a person wearing a robe. I I didn't take on the persona of a judge. I I went in there the same way I would go in there if I was a defense attorney, or prosecutor attorney. We're here to get something done and don't bring in you know, your day's stresses, don't bring in ego, don't bring in all of the things that could go into that job. Just come in as a person, understanding, reasonable, open-minded person, ready to make rational decisions based on law and equity.
0: So did you find you were controlling the egos of the lawyers?
1: I I think I certainly set a different tone in my courtroom, absolutely. Mm. I, you know, I I had some big name attorneys come into my courtroom and I really believe their demeanor was different with me than it is in other courtrooms because they know the way I conducted my court, which is I made it as comfortable of an uncomfortable situation, especially for their clients and any defendant in the courtroom. I made it a very comfortable environment. It was relaxed.
0: But did you secretly practice humor? On the bench? While never? on the bench?
1: No. Listen, if something if – something Well, happens, no, you're
0: being lighthearted, so I'm not meaning it in a, in a, in a bad way. But No,
1: and, and I'll tell you this. If there was something there that was you know, noticeably funny or if there was a moment to acknowledge, yes. of course I acknowledged it. Right. But the one thing that I never had to do as a judge that maybe other judges do and lawyers definitely do, I never needed to use that forum as a comedian. You know why? I already have one. I have a comedy stage that I go on all the time, so I don't need to bring that comedic personality into a courtroom. I perform. I'm a real stand-up.
0: Can you share with us and our listeners what was one of the best moments as a judge?
1: Yes. I I had a defendant who came before me. Uh, He was African-American descent. I I wound up pleading guilty to a charge. I, I levied the fine. And he was ready to walk out of the courtroom, and he turned around, and he looked at me, and he said, Judge, can I say something? And normally when you hear someone say that, you cringe as a judge, and you think, oh, my God, no, please don't. I just gave you a great deal. You got the lowest possible fine. Don't look at gift horse in the mouth. Leave. And he, I said, sure, go ahead. And he said, I just want to tell you that I walked into this room with a perception of what this was going to be. I looked at you, a a bald white guy with a goatee, who looks a little bit intimidating and mean, and this was completely different from what I ever thought it would be. And thank you for giving me a perception or removing the mistaken perception I had of what court is, what a judge is, and, and making this a really enjoyable experience. To me, that's something that I will take with me forever.
0: And what about your worst moment?
1: My worst moment is having um, young people come before me that are being charged with crimes, you know, use of heroin, and seeing that the system doesn't permit me to do more to help them. You know, my hands were tied to a certain degree, and I tried to establish a program and get involved with something that would give them more of an opportunity, rather than just put them in the sy- through the system. And you know, we have our parameters.
0: Now, you said that you're a different, you were a different kind of judge. Yeah. So, what's the stereotype of judge that existed that made you want to be different?
1: Well, I, as a defense attorney and as a you know a plaintiffs attorney in civil courts, I've walked into many courts where judges have that, uh, that power trip. And they're, I don't want to say abusive, condescending, I think is, you know, one way to look at it, that ivory tower mentality. You know, the, the bench is elevated. Right. And a lot of them seem to feel that they're above the people they're in front of, which is crazy because you, you were once never a lawyer, and then you became a lawyer, which is what's standing in front of you, mm. and now you're a judge. Don't ever forget where you came from. Because you could be and were one of the people standing in front of you. Now all of a sudden, you you know, you're above us physically, right. you know, literally. But that's all it is. And that was one of the things that stayed with me that there were certain judges in certain courts. When I got court notices, I cringed. I did. I knew going in there. Oh, geez, I got this one. And I never wanted to be the oh, geez, I got this one. I wanted to. When you got a court notice and you knew you were coming before me, oh. We got a great judge.
0: Now let's talk about the dilemma, the biggest dilemma you faced in your life so far. You didn't choose to leave your role as judge. You were forced to choose one over the other.
1: Yes, I was given an ultimatum.
0: Tell us about that.
1: Well, the the Supreme Court basically ruled that there is this canon uh, that guides us as judges. And there's a perception that the public has of a judge And being a comedian actor and portraying the characters I portray on television, saying some of the things I say on stage may taint that perception and put me at a lower uh, level than the level we think of judges and the appearance you're supposed to give as a judge. So perception
0: is everything in this role.
1: It is. It is in the state of New Jersey, that's for sure.
0: Because the qualifications are a given.
1: Qualifications are what they are. And I was certainly qualified. And the decision never says I'm not qualified. In fact, the decision says my record as a judge is uh, it was impeccable. And there was not one bad thing said about me as a judge. And no one has been able to find any mistakes of law, fact, Impropriety whatsoever, and that's never come into question.
0: Well, that's where, when I said that quote from Wayne Dyer, that you know, when you judge others, you're actually judging yourself. Right. You're defining the judgment by yourself. Right. Um, what was their basis? That just the perception of you being a comedian?
1: Yes, basically, it's if the public saw me performing on mm-hmm. stage. If the public saw me on the TV shows, especially the one television show, what would you do?? Right. And they saw me playing these characters, which I tend to play the antagonist. I tend to play the you know the the bad character. Um, and if someone who happened to watch this show happened to get a summons and complaint in my township and happened to appear before me, they might look at me and say, "I've seen you on TV. you're you're a horrific person." You can't treat me impartially. Right. Now, first of all, that's really a stretch, and it's really far removed. Second of all, there's an easy answer to that. Okay, fine. We'll send your case somewhere else. The odds that that's going to happen on a continual basis to me was far removed. The second part of it is I think it's absurd. I mean, if I was in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, would you think I was a pirate? no. You know, Governor Schwarzenegger is not a cyborg from the future sent back to kill people. You know, there's Al Franken, my God, look at some of the things he's written for Saturday Night Live. He sits in office. But again, this perception is well, judges are even higher than senators, higher than governors. We're looked at in a different light.
0: Uh, you'd hope so with the reputation of politicians these days.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you would hope. To the same standard. That's the thing that really got in, you know, that stuck in my clothes. is, aren't we all held to the same standard? Well, you know what
0: stuck in my mind when I was reading your story, and I thought, what could you have done that would have balanced your personal desire while maintaining your professional um, career? And I was thinking, couldn't you have been a paid speaker, going around giving professional speeches and adding a lot of humor? In that, um, and then you're actually balancing both because if if a large portion of your judgment by the judicial system is based on perception, coming across as a professional speaker who's exciting, entertaining, because then it doesn't become comedic, it becomes entertaining, has a better reputation and a better perception than just going out and being classified as a stand-up comedian.
1: Well, the, the first problem with your scenario is if it would be done in a way where it would be televised, mm-hmm. it would be treated the same as I was. Really? Yes, because part of it is appearing on television. So that was one of the, the lines that they drew. The second part of it is just if it's done as a public speaker and you're injecting humor – That would have probably been less problematic than actually standing on a stage with a comedy sign behind you or in a room that's designated as a comedy club. But again, where do you draw the line? And Vip, you you raise a great point. So one is okay, the second one isn't. Well, then at that point, are we looking at comedians and are we looking at entertainers Mm -hmm. and saying, well, sorry, you don't reach the level of judge in terms of our view of people and appearances, you know, when it comes to the way our public assesses people and says you're held to a higher standard. So entertainers don't reach the level of standard as a judge.
0: Right. Now, in press articles, uh, they write that your humor focuses on ethnic groups, religion, and and uh, revealing your political stance.
1: I, you know what? That's... Uh, no. No? That's wrong. First of all, I make fun of everything and everybody. So to limit it to just those topics... No,
0: but ethnic groups is everybody. I mean, exactly. So Religion yeah, I, is I every religion. I don't think you're... They're not stating it's a particular religion.
1: No, and I'll attack any religion, any ethnic group, and if anyone's offended by that, too bad.
0: I, and I don't I really know why don't you use out. the word attack, because, you know, humor's meant to be lighthearted. If you find something that contradicts a cultural way of life or a normal way of life...
1: Then it feels like an attack.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I just don't get that in society these days.
1: Well, that's because, see, the person who feels attacked mm. is the person who is offended. So in and, and this society, what we do is we cater to the lowest common denominator. If 100 people are told the same joke, if one person is offended, we say, well, you know what, one person got offended. We make the other 99 people suffer because that one person was offended. We, we don't say, well, listen, everyone else in the room is laughing. It's just you, we say, no, listen, you know what, you upset one person, that's it. And and I don't subscribe to that. I'm sorry, I just don't. You know, to me, if something is funny, it's funny. You're not going to make everyone laugh. Not everyone is going to find the same sense of humor. That's what makes us great. It's what makes the world spin. Not not everyone is going to find the same humor in things. There are certain movies, certain things that spark people. Other people don't find it, don't see it.
0: Well, the world isn't black and white, right? It's it's just shades of gray. It's all
1: gray. It's all gray. But unfortunately, when you go to court, there are black and white decisions, and this was one of them.
0: No, but even your decisions in court can be viewed by other judges as extremely harsh or extremely lenient. You're not going to find every judge supporting the judgment you gave out.
1: Right. You will have dissenting opinion. you sure. Look looking at the Supreme Court. They're, they're not all undefeated decisions. Mine was. I lost 7 nothing. So in that situation, the procurium decision against me was unanimous, which to me was really the, the most offensive part of the decision, that not one person on the bench said, well, hold on a second here. Here's our ruling. Everything you've done, everything you've said up until this point calls your – position into question and calls your appearance into question, if you stop doing it today, you're fine. So, it's almost like telling Paula Dean, listen, Paula, remember all the N-word stuff and the slave jokes and everything? Stop saying it today and you're no longer a racist. It's crazy. Vip. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. The decision's nonsensical.
0: But do you think when the Judicial Committee was sort of pondering this through their mind, they were thinking about it from a public's point of view as well, because I guess the public think of, or view judges in a sober way, almost up there with pastors and senior members of the community. Humor comes across as being silly, and that's something a judge cannot be. I mean, for example, if I'm a radio host by day and a phone sex operator by night, I don't think I'm going to be able to justify that with my organization.
1: If your theory and your premise is correct... Hmm then the six months that have since passed and the reaction to the decision with regards to me should have been enough to make the administrative office of the courts look at their rule and say, you know what, maybe it's time to change this rule because there's been overwhelming support in my favor. And there's been overwhelming support in my favor of people that would like to say they were supporting me but
0: can't. But then here's my thing. Um And I love the fact that you got a lot of support for your cause, but if the tables were turned in a way where these people who support you are being put on trial by a judge for something they've done who was also a comedian, do you think they might think twice? Because it's very easy to lay judgment when you're not the one being prosecuted.
1: I would, for me, Mm -hmm. I would rather have someone like me sitting on the bench judging me than having someone. What
0: What do you bring to the bench?
1: I bring to the bench the fact that I'm a person up there. I'm just a regular person who happened to achieve a certain level of success as a lawyer. And that You see,
0: that's where you're enlightening me, because I never knew, and I should have, but I never knew judges had such big egos. egos. Oh, tr- tremendous.
1: Tremendous. And unfortunately, it's... it's it's kind of like, you know, listen, look at the way they're appointed. It's, it's a political appointee, which in my situation, I've never, been a politi- I've never been politically affiliated with either party. I've never registered myself as a Republican or Democrat, ever. I'm not independent. I'm unregistered. So I get it. I'm appointed three Republicans, two Democrats, five-nothing vote. When I'm up for reappointment, my, the cat was already out of the bag. The, the, court, the case was before the Supreme Court, or at least was scheduled to be argued at some point. Democrats took over. They chose the first year to do nothing. Second year, Democrats said, listen, we're not going to wait for the Supreme Court. You know what? You're doing a great job. Four Democrats, one Republican, reappoint me five-nothing. So, listen, does that kind of develop an ego? Do you kind of start to develop an ego based on that? Possibly. I can see how that happens. When someone is plucked out of a law firm because of political associations and the friendships and you're appointed to the superior court... Does ego come with that? Well, does ego come with the law profession? Sure it does. Now take a lawyer and tell them they're a super lawyer.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. I guess this perception of being a judge removes all aspect of the fact that emotional gratification should play any part in your judgment.
1: Well, unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Listen, it it depends on a person. Now, I'm not saying this of all judges. We have... Some amazing judges here in the state of New Jersey that have appeared before. Mm-hmm. I've been to New York courts, amazing judges there. The well, Vince... United States Supreme Court, eh, well, you know.
0: <laughs> now, when you look back, do you think in all fairness that the ultimatum the Judicial Committee served on you was the best thing in the public's interest? Not your fans, but the overall public.
1: In the public interest? No. no. Absolutely not. Why? But because I think what we've done now is we've limited the type of people that can sit on the bench in the state of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And why would you want to do that? Why would you ever want to limit the spectrum of people that can sit in such an important position?
0: And you really don't want to discriminate against professions then either, right?
1: Well, that's, that's the other Being a
0: comedian doesn't sort of lessen your role and your ability to be a judge.
1: Right. And, and should we start looking at certain professions like entertainers and say, sorry, you don't reach the level that we find judges to be at should we say that about any profession i don't know where do you draw the line it's a slippery slope
0: now how's the entertainment world now that you're in the entertainment world how is it different from the legal world in terms of ethics rules integrity etc
1: you know it's it's not as different as you would think and if you look at the backlash that certain entertainers are facing between alec baldwin and the comments he makes you look at you know Stephen Colbert, and now there's this movement by some people to remove him. It's it's not as different as you would think, which is really sad.
0: Hmm. But then I mean, as, really, as we lawyers... We're walking I mean,
1: on eggshells now. Everyone has to be really careful about what they say and do.
0: Yeah, with all the paparazzi and then the photos and... Well, yeah, that. because
1: you're judged by one statement, one comment, as opposed to a lifetime of who you are and what you've done. So you make one off-color remark... And that's the thing that everyone's going to jump on and start attacking you with and not say, listen, let's judge the person's character and not, you know, one moment out of a lifetime.
0: But, you know, all said and done, uh, you always get the agent saying it's free publicity.
1: Yeah, but again, you know, careers are are destroyed. Um, You know, you you have to go through this whole rehabilitation process when you just want to work. You know, I mean, should that really be part of the job? And, and part, Does it have to be that much of a game? Uh, I mean, come on.
0: Hmm. Well, let's talk about your career, the new career. How do you prepare for a routine?
1: Well, it, it's funny. The new career has been the same as the old career, and, and both careers took off at the same time. Everyone seems to think that I'm judge-turned-comedian, and that's not true. I was a comedian long before I was a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, The two careers, like I said, I I started working on material right after I took the bar. I've been doing both for 17 years. Uh, When it comes to crafting material, you know, my life, looking at the news, the more you live, the more you will find comedy. The worst thing you could do to find comedy is stay at home. Unless, Well, then again, if you have a family like mine, staying at home is a good thing for comedy.
0: (laughs) Is it easy? Because it looks, like, it, it looks like it looks like you go on stage, you're wearing t shirt and jeans, you're sort of blending in with the crowd, uh, you're just talking away.
1: If you're good at it, yes. It's, it's easy in the well, easy is, I don't want to use the word easy. If you're good at it, you will find success comes a little bit easier than certain people that sit, work, craft jokes, and are constantly, you know, trying to find humor. Mm-hmm. Um, If you have the personality and a persona that, or your mind, really the key is your mind, that gravitates towards finding the humor in everything in life, it's going to come easier.
0: So what's your main source of inspiration for your material? I mean, you sit down, what do you see or look for that you can next use as material?
1: I I think that's the key. I don't look for it. I think it's just a matter of keeping your eyes open. Mm -hmm. And comedy will come to you. Um, in, in various forms, and it's just all, again, it's all perception. I mean, one of the jokes that I do is about Captain Sully, how he, you know, everyone, as I was watching that event, thought, oh, my God, look at this miraculous landing on, on the Hudson River, and this guy's incredible, and I, my immediate was reaction was, y- you flew a plane, hit a goose, and you lost? I mean, if I, I ever saw a plane and a goose going head-to-head, In the sky, I would bet on the plane every time. Apparently, this guy lost that chicken fight somehow. The second thing that I found miraculous about it wasn't even so much the landing on the Hudson River, but it was how fast everyone managed to get off the plane as opposed to when you pull up to the terminal. It takes two hours for people in first class to get their bags out.
0: That's true. (laughs) That's very true. Now, do you have to train to be a comedian?
1: Some people do. I think training comes in stage time. I think it's just a question of getting on stage and, and working your craft. It's a craft. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Like yes, you know, but
0: you have to get on stage. But in order to get on stage, you need to be funny. You have to be good. Someone's got to let, the, let you through the velvet rope. Absolutely. So, you know, before you get there, what do you have to do apart from beg, steal and borrow?
1: You you have to craft a set. You have to be prepared to show this industry something they haven't seen before. And everybody that I know in existence is unique. We all come from a different place, a different perspective, a different mindset, even though our government's trying to change it into one. If you can keep that from happening, you will have a voice no one else has. Everyone has a voice.
0: So what is your voice? What is your uniqueness?
1: My voice is you are all thinking exactly what I'm thinking. I am brash enough to say it for you. And if you're not laughing on the outside, you are certainly laughing on the inside.
0: Is there a lot of money in the comedy business?
1: If there is, I haven't found it yet, Vip. (laughs) And believe me, I'm looking. Um,
0: But does being funny funny pay the bills?
1: No, no. Um, It pays some of the bills, which is why I'm still a lawyer. Um, My sets on Monday at Caroline's pay $25. The reason you do it isn't... For
0: well, the sp- toll is about $14. The,
1: the, the toll is, yeah, 13 By the time I'm done, I, bra- I wind up coming home with about 2 or $3 between gas, tolls, parking, and everything else. You don't do that for the money. There's a couple reasons why you do it. One, stage time. Two, the prestige of performing at Caroline's. Three, the fact that there could be someone in the audience that night that could make a difference in your life. Four, again, it's developing your craft. Five, because you love doing it. It's a drug, and you have to get up there and do it, because if you don't, you will go out of your mind.
0: Now, how often are you performing? Every day or every night, sorry?
1: No, no. I perform, like I said, I'm at Caroline's every Monday, with the rare exception. Uh, I, I'm also one of the backup warm-up comics for The Daily Show. I have now been picked up to be one of the warm-up comics for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah, it's, you know what? I'm, I'm and He's lost. funny. I'm, and, uh, you know, and I perform all over the city. I perform, I'm going to be performing in Massachusetts uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm headlining here five miles away from my old court in Hasbro Kites at Bananas. So, you know, I make my rounds. I make my way around.
0: How, how did you land the spot on these shows?
1: Well, oddly enough, I was doing a show at Caroline's and I had opened for a big name comedian. And apparently I did a little too well. And he did not want me to open for him anymore because he was having a difficult time following me. So the club said, listen, you have too much energy. You're you're a little too good. You have headliner status here. We're going to let you MC shows rather than open for these acts. So the next time one of these big headliners came in, the opening act was one of the executive producers of The Daily Show saw me do my MC set, which was mainly crowd work and said, how have I never heard of you? Would you love to do crowd work for us at The Daily Show? I jumped on the opportunity. It took a while to get me in front of them, and when I did, I seized it. And since then, I've kind of developed a reputation for being one of the best improv comics around, and you know, when John Oliver came calling, I jumped at the opportunity.
0: Well, oh, he's funny. He's really funny.
1: Oh, all of these people—immensely talented people—between the people at the Daily Show, the Colbert Report, John Oliver. I mean, have you
0: met them personally? I have. How and, are they? And,
1: you know, John Stewart to me is such a lesson for me in life. He's what you want to be when you attain a level of success. And what is that? Well, I'll give you an example. You know, I never told him I was a judge and I was going through everything. And the day of my hearing, you know, I went from the Supreme Court in Trenton, drove up to my house, got changed, went and warmed up his crowd. And when I handed him the mic, I mean, he was going to go do a show here. He has something important to do. I handed him the mic and he looked at me and went, well, thank you, Your Honor. And I looked at him and, you know, he started laughing. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hey, he goes, you're going to be fine. He goes, just keep doing what you're doing. And then, you know, he just started talking to me about it. So, But that's where his mindset is before he starts his show. He's so in the moment that he acknowledged me. Wow. And, you know, and that's the type of guy he
0: is. Now, keep doing what you're doing, but ultimately, what's your destination?
1: You know what? For me, it, it, yeah. there is no end to this destination. No, no, you're
0: going to be in comedy, but ultimately, what do you want to do? Do you want to appear in a movie? Oh, do, you, do you want your own show?
1: I, I am you want to be on TV? Ring, Vip. Sorry? I'm going for the brass ring. I, I want to have everything that this industry offers from Emmys, Oscars, the star in the walk of fame. And I, you know what? I'm not afraid to say it out loud. Years ago, I was. Uh, it's almost like I was afraid to say it, almost embarrassed of it, because it seems like a crazy dream. Mm-hmm. But if you don't say it out loud, well, then how do you believe it will ever happen?
0: But in terms of importance, what are the top three things?
1: To me, it's being a regular working actor-comedian. It's, it's getting roles on a regular basis and sustaining in this career and having the respect of my peers. As much as you, know, you want to hold an Oscar, it's, it's not so much because of... No, the but
0: fans. would you like your own TV show?
1: I would love my own TV show. I would love it. Why, would, who wouldn't?
0: Now, which comedian inspires you?
1: Richard Pryor, to me, was the, the best... Of the best um, because I think his humor if you put on his videos from the 70s today mm. they're still relevant and people would still laugh and to me that's that's real humor when it's timeless um, and he crosses racial boundaries and everything else so to me he just transcends I know a lot of people had a problem with Carlin towards the end that he became so boxish and preachy But what he was trying to do is enlighten people. And you know what? You're allowed to do that after 17 HBO specials. Um, So these are some of the great voices in terms of stand-up.
0: Do you ever use their style in your own style?
1: You know what? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I've been compared. I guess the thing that I hear all the time is I'm a modern-day version of Don Rickles. Um, I go after the audience. I, I tend to be... Uh, high energy on stage
0: are you spontaneous
1: very much so very much I, I treat a live audience like a live audience which is part of the reason why you've never seen me on television on letterman and you know comedy central And the, the big knock on me is well you don't really stand and deliver the camera you know you work the crowd in too much and that's hard to translate on tv and i said well i'm not on tv at those moments i'm in front of a live audience i'm going to acknowledge them
0: Now, let's talk about the state of humor in America, because I'm going to actually talk about the challenges of being a comedian later. Now, you performed at the Governor Byrne Roast in Newark recently. (laughs) It was at the New Jersey
1: Performing Arts Center in Newark. And you
0: said something and no one laughed, not not visually. What did uh, you say? I
1: I said something that no one applauded, which was in a room full of you know, people that are politicians or whatever the case might be. And that was extremely disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I acknowledged Governor McGreevy and what he went through. And I, you know, basically said that gay marriage is now legal in a way that I would hope the people in the room would acknowledge and, applause and applaud and no one did. And I said, wow, I guess I'm the only one for civil rights. And once again, no one applauded. And I said, interestingly enough, I'm also the one that got removed as judge. And I would hope that got a laugh. Oddly enough, it got a laugh, big laugh, in the green room from the writers. But everyone in the room was very uncomfortable with that. Mm. And to me, it was, it, it, it still sits really badly with me that no one applauded that. And I said, wow, 170 to nothing vote on that one. That was sad. That was very sad. So that was something that stuck with me. But you know what? Listen, not every joke hits. Not every joke is a, is a winner. And in that room with old white people, you're going to have some uh, some bumpy parts.
0: Now, silence can be viewed as heckling. Okay? And, I guess. Uh, and also, if you're in a club and and you say something and you get heckled, how do you handle that?
1: you you have to be prepared as a comedian and luckily you know because of my ability to do improvisation i tend to do very well in fact i'm in the movie heckler which is a documentary on heckling and there happened to be cameras rolling and mm-hmm. someone heckled me and i absolutely destroyed them and the key is as a comedian to be equipped with humor and have no fear to throw that humor back at a person. If it's not humor and you're going back at the person with anger, then you're gonna get a Michael Richards situation.
0: So you're always ready with a few lines going back.
1: You better be as a comedian, Mm -hmm. otherwise don't get on that stage. You better know something about everything and that will equip you for just about any situation.
0: Now you've been on stage for a while now, how many years? 17 years. 17 years. Have you noticed there's been a change in u s society's appetite for humor
1: not even so much from stage but more so from television yes mm. yeah it's been a it's been a sad change it really is it's um,
0: because now we're always scared about that one person out of a hundred being yeah. offended that we don't worry about the ninety nine
1: you're a hundred percent right and The 99 are going to suffer for that one. Mm. So now you're going to get a watered-down version of what people are trying to say, which is why so many TV shows fail. Because the writers that are writing for these shows are being censored, they're being curtailed, and they're being told, no, you can't do that.
0: But the cartoons get away with it.
1: Yes. And thank God.
0: Family Guy and what's the other one?
1: South Park. Right. The two most important shows on television, thank God, for Seth MacFarlane, um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the the three of the most important people that we have in our society, not just television, in our society today.
0: Why are we so scared to offend in a humorous way, not even offend, I mean, I'm, I'm locking myself here. Why, why are we so scared to uh, make something light out of something that is normally perceived as heavy?
1: of my other profession vip lawyers (laughs) the lawyers someone's going to come in and try to sue and someone's going to say that was wrong and and we have damages and and there you go it's it's incredible that my two jobs seem to be in direct opposition of one another but yet i'm able to do both of them
0: yeah because uh it just seems political correctness has almost become the word of law
1: it's crazy It's absolutely crazy. This country's lost the most important thing that has distinguished us from the rest of the world, our sense of humor. We've lost it. And and when you lose your sense of humor, it's like castrating the country.
0: Oh, the other day um, I went um, with some friends for dinner. And, you know, it's cold and it's still cold out here. Um, (laughs) Lady wore a fur coat, came in, a friend of ours, and I said, nice beaver. And – she laughed, but the guys who were with me were so offended. They said, "What did you just say?" Yeah. I said, "Nice beaver." And that's not And 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 the, and the irony of it, she had a fur coat made from beaver. Right. Uh, now- and, and the guys are getting upset, but she's like, "Oh, Vip, you say the nicest things." Right. I said, "Well, let's keep going."
1: And if you would have said something like, "You know, yeah. actually, I'm also a taxidermist and really good at stuffing beavers," <laughs> there still wouldn't have been a problem. I know. Yeah, but this is this is where we are.
0: Yeah, the uh, you know, happy hour means a different meaning now these days. It's just yeah, crazy, it, it's
1: ridiculous. Listen, I, at the roast, I referenced Joy Behar. Mm-hmm. Half the room laughed. Half the room cringed. I said, Joy, you were replaced by Jenny McCarthy on The View. Well, on the bright side, you were never hired for your looks. And half the room laughed, half the room cringed. I said, the name of the show is The View, not The Viewpoint. <laughs> and to me, it's like, really, we're offended by that? What am I saying? Oh, you know, you called a woman unattractive. And I said, no, I never said she was ugly. I said she was never hired for her looks. She was hired for her opinion. Jenny was hired for her looks. So you can flip that every which way, and then, you, now that, well, that's calling Jenny stupid. No, it's, it's a joke, everybody. Relax.
0: People don't relax anymore.
1: No, no. It's, it's, again, it's find something and complain about it. Because you know what? You're not allowed to be nice either anymore, Vip. See, that's the other thing. Like you with that woman. If you see an attractive woman in the office... You have to be careful going up to her and say, wow, you look great today. Because what's everyone say? Oh, depending on how you say it, that's sexual harassment, that's this, that's the other Oh,
0: yeah, we get classes in that.
1: Right. So you're not allowed to be nice. So I guess the only option is to be mean.
0: But do you make fun of yourself on stage?
1: Always, always.
0: So you are self-deprecating?
1: Oh, completely. I mock myself for my looks. um, But you you don't
0: make fun about being a judge. No, and you don't make fun of judges. No, is that because you secretly hope to become one if they overturn the decision?
1: No, I just you know what? Right now, I'm not finding humor in that situation because I'm really saddened by the decision. To right. be quite honest with you, mm-hmm. um, it still doesn't sit well with me. I, you know, I'm I'm bothered by it. Um, you know, to me, it's uh, maybe someday I'll find the humor. Right now, I don't. I think it's sad. That, again, we're, we're going to limit our scope of to who can take that position. I, that's part of society that depresses me, that really bothers me.
0: Well, you know, you're facing so many challenges. Here's, here's, here's a question. What if you don't make it? What's well, plan B?
1: There is no plan B. Plan, plan A is the only plan. The worst thing you could do in life mm-hmm. is have a plan B stick with plan A, because if the worst thing in life is I don't make it and I don't even know really what that means, what's not making it, not winning an Oscar, not winning a SAG award, not getting the star in a walk.
0: No, I just asked you. I said, you know what? I mean, do you make a living out of being a comedian? Does it pay all the bills? You said no.
1: Right. But to a certain extent, I mean, I think I have made it in the sense that I am performing on Governor roasts and warming up crowds for the, the most successful comedy show in television history, performing in the biggest clubs. I have the respect of my peers. I mean, I, to a certain extent, I have made it. Again, what, what is being successful? What, you know, there's my definition. There's the industry's definition. Right. But to me, there's no plan B. Right. Plan A is you keep trying. You keep trying to get better.
0: The now You've plan. made a drastic change, obviously, from the legal side to the entertainment side. Would you recommend people follow the, their dream in the way you have?
1: If it means as much to you mm-hmm. as it means to me, yes. you have no choice. Follow that dream. You have no choice. It's, it's not even something that goes into a thought process. You just do it.
0: And what message would you give those who want to do what you've done? Not and not in do, terms of just going into comedy. I mean, in terms of...
1: Do it for the right reason. Don't do it to be famous. Don't do it for the money. Don't do it for prestige. I, I could have...
0: No, but if they're just going into doing, wanting to do something else. Do it uh, because
1: you love it. If there's something you want to do yeah. that you have a passion for mm-hmm. and you love, do it. Period. Because but, that, that, that's what life is about. That's what this life is about. It's not about a, a job that makes you a lot of money. Hell, I was a lawyer. I, I became a municipal court judge doing law while balancing it with an entertainment career. If I just invested myself 100% into my law career, I've already turned down two partnerships right. because I had to pursue entertainment. I could have made a whole lot of money as a lawyer, a lot of money. In fact, I've probably, if, you look, if you take it over 17 years, Vip, I've probably left seven figures behind already. My life could be very comfortable financially. I would have been miserable.
0: And what are the pitfalls you would advise them on before they take the plunge?
1: Know that especially in entertainment business, Mm -hmm. you have a 1% success rate. So be prepared to hear no 99 times. If if your skin isn't thick enough to hear no 99 times, then don't do it because it's heart-wrenching.
0: So be prepared for pain, but come with passion.
1: Yes. You you are going to cry. You are going to cry going for this dream.
0: That's a bit like marriage then.
1: Yeah, you're going to cry.
0: Well, thanks for coming on the show, Vince.
1: Well, Vip, it's been a pleasure.
0: Keep making people laugh. We Always. all need a dose of it these days. <laughs> Always. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at VIPJASWAL and my Facebook page, The VIPJASWAL Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.